You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Uh, it's anti-immigrant. It's give me back the old job I had. Technology has now made me obsolete. Um, and uh, we've had that before. We had it in the Industrial Revolution. So this is not anything new. And when society is disrupted, as we have been by globalization, it's here to stay, but it's disruptive. And when people are disrupted, uh, they look for any port in a storm. And somebody promising them the old days is going to be somebody they follow. Some, Some dangerous politicians have done that and been successful for a time. Yeah, I think that, that the strength of our country is, is you know, we're the, we're the freest, uh, the most open society in, 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 in the world, and I think we'll continue to be that way. I think that uh, uh, Mr. Trump has, has uh, defined himself fairly well uh, during the campaign, but now we're finding that when he deals with the real world, whether, whether it's national security or economy, his position is changing a lot of these issues. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 276 political perspectives, airing for the first time on Sunday, January 1st, 2017. This month, we inaugurate a new President of the United States, which is certain to create change in both the nation and our state. Today we speak with two attorneys who have long had a passion for politics and have contributed greatly to our government. Harold Patius is one of the founding partners of law firm Preddy Flaherty. His prior career in politics dates back to the Kennedy administration. Also a Preddy Flaherty founding partner, Severin Beliveau directs the firm's government affairs practice in Augusta and Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love Main Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. My next guest is an individual who is very well known on the main scene. This is Harold Patius, who is one of the founding partners of the law firm Preddy Flaherty. Prior to practicing law, he had a career in government and politics. He served as an associate White House press secretary under President Johnson, was nominated by President Clinton to the U.S. Commission on Public Diplomacy, and was appointed by Secretary of State Colin Powell to the State Department's Special Advisory Group on the Arab and Muslim World, and he now lives in Cape Elizabeth. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. You've been around a long time doing this work. I'm old. I've been around a long time, yeah. I've done a lot of different things simply because I've survived. Well, it's interesting to think back to uh, 
President Johnson, press secretary under President Johnson. Like, how'd you even get that gig? Oh, that was was a different era. I went to law school. I, I, I went in the United States Navy after college. I got a commission when I graduated and uh, went, went aboard a ship two weeks later in the North Atlantic. And uh, in the, the campaign of 1960, on Election Day 1960, um, I was, came off watch and I went to the radio room. We were out in the North Atlantic. And I began pulling sheets off the AP and UPI tickers on reports from various states. And I kind of got hooked. The next morning became apparent that Kennedy had won. And I thought to myself, I want to go try to be part of what Kennedy is doing. I got very excited about John F. Kennedy. So I applied to Georgetown Law School. And he had a choice between day school and night school. I took the night school. I showed up there and uh, mid-August of 1961. Kennedy had been president for five months. I got a job, I didn't know a soul in Washington, got a job uh, in a restaurant as a waiter. And after 10 days in school, uh, one night at a contracts class, guy sitting behind me in a very striped suit tie, and I'm in my coffee-stained khakis, uh, said to me uh, at the break, where'd you go to school? I said, I went to Princeton. He said, so did I. What do you do? I said, I'm a waiter. And he kind of frowned at that, and so it, it really upset me. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I work for the president's brother-in-law, Sergeant Shriver. We're starting a new agency called the Peace Corps. Do you want a job? And it, this is no, no kidding now. A day later, I went there before school. A young man came out to interview me from this Peace Corps study group. His name was Bill Moyers. Nobody had ever heard of him. I'd never heard of him. And Moyers said, Dick Nelson told us you want a job. We'll give you a job. Just like that. I'm just telling you, that's the way it happened. And uh, so I became uh, associated with Bill Moyers at a very young age. And he was very young. He was in his 20s. And I worked with him at the Peace Corps headquarters. All of the most interesting people that came to Washington because of John Kennedy worked in the Peace Corps. It was a very small staff. We got to know each other well. Uh, Moyers was one of them. Moyers was a good friend of the Vice President, Lyndon Johnson. So he was from Texas. And uh, when uh, Kennedy was assassinated, Moyers was in Texas, came back on the airplane with Johnson, and didn't leave his side, really, for the next two to three years. And so um, in the campaign of 64, Moyers got me to come on the staff and uh, work in the campaign. And then I went full-time in the White House uh, following the campaign when Moyers became the press secretary and I became his deputy. So that's it in a nutshell. So if this was a different time that you're describing yeah. and the way that one gets involved in politics is was slightly different back then, do you think that that has translated into what's going on in, in the modern day? Do you think that that's translated into a different way of approaching politics? Well, it, 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 how I got involved is instructive on how other young people can get involved. Um, I always tell young people, college students, say, gee, I'd like to get a job in a congressman's office or in politics. And I always tell them proximity is the key to everything in this world. Proximity. Whatever it is, think proximity. So if you're interested and there's a campaign coming up, go volunteer in the campaign. 
And when you volunteer, make sure that you become indispensable. Because if you're an indispensable volunteer, you're shortly going to get a paid job. They don't want to lose you. So that's the key to make yourself indispensable while you're a volunteer. And then they give you a job, and then it's proximity. And candidates know you, people running for Congress, Senate, they know who you are. The best thing is to be the car driver, to drive them around. Nixon had two uh, top assistants. One of them went to jail, Ehrlichman. The other one was Haldeman. They have very bad reputations, but they ran the Nixon White House. And how did they start? Driving Richard Nixon around when he ran for Senate in the 1950s. They were his car drivers. And I can tell you about a lot of car drivers in campaigns who became very important aides to top politicians. So proximity, that's what I would say. So do you think that this is one of the issues that we have these days is that we're very connected but we're very we're not as connected where we can well, be it, connected socially on social networks but not as much face to face absolutely but also another difference is the number the, the amount of media the um, the amount of the number of sources of information so when we had just three television networks just three um, they had to play to wide audiences, broad audiences, so they couldn't be very partisan. They had to be as objective as possible because in order to make money, if you were one of the three, you had to have very broad audiences. Now, you know, MSNBC, Fox, they don't need a very broad audience. They don't need a lot of people to make a lot of money. And so they cater to just a sliver of uh, the electorate and uh, that's enough for them to make a lot of money just like talk radio uh, these people on talk road radio make a fortune because they get a narrow group of people fired up those people can't wait to listen to that talk radio sh show whether it's Limbaugh or whoever and um, they get rich doing it so no one has to talk to the middle anymore that's why ranked choice voting is so important, because it requires politicians to think about the broad middle rather than just a sliver of the left or the right. So that's the, that's the biggest difference. And we can tune in now to listen to whatever we want in terms of what we agree with. So I have a mother-in-law that listens only to Fox. There are many people that listen only to Fox. Many. Uh, well, you couldn't do that in the old days. You had to listen to ABC, NBC, or CBS. Totally different. So I don't know where we're going uh, now. I mean, we have this, uh, not for the first time in American history, this uh, very strong populist movement, which Donald Trump has tapped into. Uh, it's anti-immigrant. It's give me back the old job I had. Technology has now made me obsolete. Um, and uh, we've had that before. We had it in the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so this is not anything new. And when society is disrupted, as we have been by globalization, it's here to stay, but it's disruptive. And when people are disrupted, uh, they look for any port in a storm and somebody promising them the old days is going to be somebody they follow. Some 
some dangerous politicians have done that and been successful for a time. Didn't Hitler do that? Hitler did it. I mean, Hitler, it began as a populist movement. The Nazi party began as a populist movement. People were, after World War I, Germany had been defeated. The German economy was in tatters. Uh, at the end of the, uh, 12 years later, there was a global depression. So uh, people did follow that. And people elected, you know, the Nazi party was elected. It didn't just take over. It wasn't a coup. Millions of Germans voted for the Nazi party because they thought it was a solution to their problems. So uh, they later regretted, regretted it. I'm reminded, I was reading a book about World War II. I read a lot of World War II books. And when the U.S. Army was going into Munich in April, the end of April, 1945, Munich was falling to the Allies. And um, there was a big white sign in the downtown side of a bridge that the U.S. Army went across. And the, the sign said, I'm ashamed to be a German. So, and since that time, you know, the Germans collectively have been very introspective. Why did we do this? Why did we as a country elect Adolf Hitler and put the Nazis in power? Uh, we don't have anybody being introspective right now. Uh, there will be, We have a lot of columnists that are warning us, but we don't really have individuals, a lot of individuals, being introspective about what's going on in this country. Is it also problematic that we don't have a lot of time for reflection, where the news is so immediate and it's being reported in such an immediate way that there's no greater contextual analysis? You are correct. That is the biggest problem. No context. And because there's no context, people go on the internet, you can find and, and get untruths. Everybody is producing information now. I can sit in my house tonight and produce information and send it to a thousand people if I had their email addresses. A thousand people or more. I produce the information. It doesn't have to be truthful. doesn't have to be factual. But I can produce it knowing that my audience, the thousand people I'm sending it to, they would love to believe what I'm saying. And they accept it. And you are correct. They give it no context. Most people aren't interested in history. We devalue history now. We have people saying, why should I study history in college? What good will that do me? I want to go in the insurance business. What good will history be to me? History allows us to put things, as you just said, in context. I read two books while I was on vacation. One was about the sinking of the Lusitania, mm -hmm. and the other one was about Pat Tillman, who was the NFL player yes. who was killed in um, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, and it was, and he was a victim of friendly fire. And both of them were so very interesting because it really spoke to how information comes out, um, sort of the timeline, and also who interprets it, and and why. It's. It, 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 I'm, I'm glad you, 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 you raised that point because I think that is critical for everybody to, to think about. You, know, w you read those books and it helps you with discernment. There's very little discernment 
among the American public today. One of the problems, and I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I don't care what they're going to do to me. One of the problems is uh, not enough education. We need to really push to educate people beyond high school. Uh, if you look at polls now uh, of who people support and why, there's huge divisions. Has, it, it, it has nothing to do with who the candidates are. It's what they're selling. It's what they're promoting. And so there are huge divisions based on level of education. What does that tell us? Why should education be such a, a distinguisher among people as to how they vote? Why should education be, be, be the line? But it is. Look at the polls. There was one in the... Uh, there was one in the Portland newspapers a couple of days ago showing, you know, the views of those with only a high school education and the views of those who have been educated beyond high school. Now, in a populist movement like we have now, what people say in response to me is, you're an elitist. You're an elitist, and that's wrong, and we have to bring you down. Uh, it's too late to bring me down. Gone, on, gone along too long. You've been with Pretty Flaherty for since the beginning. Well, uh, yeah, kind of the beginning. I've been with Pretty Flaherty since that firm began. I was with another firm briefly uh, for a while called Berman, Berman, Wernick, and Flaherty. That's where the Flaherty came from. And uh, so I've been, I came to practice in Portland in um, 1969. So I was born in 1936, so that's uh, a long time ago. And I'm, I'm 80 years old now, and uh, I've been practicing law, let's say 69, uh, uh, o o almost 50 years, to a couple years short of 50 years at Pretty Flaherty. So what keeps you doing this? What keeps you showing up every day and being part of this? Well, I have other things to do, but the things I do uh, relate to my profession, law, and uh, relate to making things happen, uh, solving problems. And um, I like to read, but I wouldn't want to be home all day reading. Uh, I just don't want to do that. So I like to do things. And, and uh, I see things all the time that uh, I'm a bit of a gadfly that irritate me and I try to do something about it, most often I fail. I'm around town in Portland. I, if I see graffiti on buildings, I want to do something about it. I want to go talk to somebody about it. I want to call a city manager or whatever. It's just my nature. Do you think that that's unusual in this day and age? Uh, I don't know. It depends on the, on, on, on the person. You know, uh, look at uh, George Mitchell. George Mitchell is three years older than I am. And he is uh, the chairman of his law firm, which is the largest law firm in the world. He travels all over the globe. He is a problem solver. People call him up. He is the best, biggest business getter in the largest law firm in the, in the world. 
He is a very busy guy. He spends an enormous time in Maine because of his Mitchell Institute. Uh, he spends he, he he reads all the time. He writes all the time. He writes books. He writes speeches. He's a dynamo. I'm not saying that just because he's my friend. He's a dynamo. He's 83. So uh, you 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 do it. I think as long as you can, and then uh, when uh, either God thinks it's time for you to check out and end it, or uh, you get impaired in some way, you can't do it anymore. But why not do it while you can? Well, my father is still practicing medicine. He's 70. So he is? he's still got 10 good years ahead of him, according to where, your schedule, where, where, I guess. Where, 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 where does your father live? Well, he, is, he lives in Yarmouth, and he yeah. practices. Actually, my mom's still teaching. She's 70. They both do it because they love what they do. Yeah. And they both, you know, right in this Portland area. And it keeps them going and vital. I mean, they don't, they're not just sitting around. They're, they're doing something that they like. They're making a contribution and they're helping themselves. So is that why you keep doing this? I keep doing it because I'm interested. I don't, I don't say, okay, I'm going to keep doing all this because it keeps me healthy or alert keeps away dementia or whatever. I do it because I see things that I think are wrong. I'm not always right. And I want to correct them. There, when I worked for Sergeant Shriver, who was President Kennedy's brother-in-law, who is incidentally the most incredible man I've ever met in all my years, Sergeant Shriver, Kennedy's brother-in-law. The Kennedys didn't think he was the most incredible guy, but many others who worked for them did. And he invented the Peace Corps, actually. Every detail of it, he invented it. But uh, Shriver was always uh, fond of the quote uh, by Edward Everett Horton, I am only one, but I am still one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And uh, I think that's right. And it isn't all for good either. I mean, I, I'm not saying that I'm altruistic. I'm saying that I like to make things happen. And, 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 and I'll confess, at my age, it's harder to make it happen. I wonder if, if one of the things that you just said is um, more wise than you realize, and that's, I'm going to say this. It may not make me a popular person. People may disagree with me, but I'm going to say it anyway. I wonder if one of the things that is happening is that in this era of political correctness, people feel like they can't say anything for fear of being criticized or ostracized, or and so they just don't speak. Po political correctness is a f very interesting term. I even myself have, over the years, you know, frowned on, quote, political correctness, end quote. But what is political correctness? Being nice to people? Is it being civil? Is that political correctness? Is if you think uh, another politician or somebody running for office is a jerk, if you fail to call them a jerk and say, well, they're all right, you know, not try to be civil, is that being politically correct? I think people think that's being politically correct. What they like about Donald Trump, a lot of people tell me what they like about Donald Trump, and you've heard it, we've all heard it, is he tells it like it is, so that if he says that 
Jeb Bush is weak and a fool, if he says that uh, Hillary is a crook, if he says some gives some horrible other insult to somebody, he insults people every day, people love it. Some people love it. Some people. I better be careful. Some people love it. And they say, ah, look at that. He's candid. He's telling it the way it is. He's not politically correct. That uh, People who say that, in my judgment, and I hope they're listening, are fools to think that. Are fools. I think that I meant, um, well, I know this, not just I think that I meant this. I meant the situation where people... I agree we should be nice to people. I agree that we should understand where people are coming from and that we don't have to go out of our way to say things that are insulting. Right. I think that what I'm talking about is college campuses where there's evidence of microaggressions and people, nobody feels like they can say I anything. I think it's ridiculous. That's what I mean okay, by that's political what you're correct. About Extreme aggressions. You know, um, at Yale, uh, they've had Calhoun College for... A uh, hundred years, and uh, students protested because Calhoun was a slaveholder. Mm. Well, every signer of the D Declaration of Independence south of Maryland was a slaveholder. Every one of them. Jefferson was a slaveholder. Should we tear down the Jefferson Memorial? Is that offending people? Uh, I I'm the son of Greek immigrants, and. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of offensive things said about Greek immigrants. So, it's over. So what? I'm not offended. I, I can't go around b being offended by everything. And these people on college campuses, if they're going to be so uh, easily offended, are going to have a very tough time in life. Well, I would have to agree with you there. I'm hoping that people can, uh, we can get a little beyond that so that we can be nice to people and we can understand where everybody's coming from, but we can still have an open dialogue so that we can move forward. But what do we do about it? I guess maybe it's a fad. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Well, you've been very gracious to spend time with us today, and I know you're a busy person, so we're going to um, take this time that we spent uh, with you and wrap it up. Is there anything, one one thing that you hope to see as you continue your days on this planet? Most of what I think about when I drive around and think about do I, I'm looking forward to something in the future is Portland, Maine and what it's becoming and what it can become. Uh, to me, uh, it's the most exciting thing that's happened to me is to live in this city through a period of enormous change. I've lived here in the bad days, in the down days, and now I've lived long enough to see this renaissance of Portland, Maine, and its potential is so much more, and that's what really excites me. I've been speaking with Harold Patius, who is one of the founding partners of the law firm Pretty Flaherty and has a long and distinguished career prior to that in the political world. I really appreciate your taking the time to come in and offer these perspectives and uh, to have this conversation with me today. Thank you for having me. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. 
For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is an individual well-known, really, in the state of Maine. This is Severin Beliveau, who is one of Maine's best-known attorneys and has significant experience in legislative and regulatory issues. He is a founding partner of Preddy Flaherty and directs the firm's government affairs practice in Augusta and Washington, D.C. I know this is a very short, we've shortened the bio, but yours is very um, long and uh, impressive. <laughs> and I mean, you've been around doing stuff with the state of Maine and really nationally, maybe even internationally, for a long time. Many years, yeah, 50 years. Think about it. 50 years since I, when I graduated from law school, returned to, to Rumford, where I, where I was born and raised. Um, from there, uh, my father had just retired from our state Supreme Court. My brother came from the Justice Department. We started a law firm with no clients, and um, and we built on that. And I had I was elected uh, district attorney at the time, and, and that was the kind of the beginning. And then um, uh, I was the state legislature, House, Senate, and then um, eventually, we, after I was married, we moved to um, to Augusta, to Hollowell, and where we've been for the last. 30, 25 some odd years, and a few years ago, after our children, our four boys, uh, left after they, were, after they were educated, and three of whom are out of state, one of whom is here, we moved here to Portland, where we lived in a condo on Munjoy Hill. Yeah. So you saw a lot of change in, in Rumford, I would imagine, uh, given what Rumford used to be and what mm-hmm. Rumford has evolved into. What was your family's interaction with, with the mill? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, when, when I was a kid in, 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 the, in the 50s, um, uh, the mill was thriving. It, it, the paper mill at that time employed over 3,000 men and women. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a strong sense of community where, it was, where the co- company was owned by a family from, um, from uh, Connecticut. Uh, strong unions. Uh, Good pay, the salaries, the, the hourly wages were very high, among the highest in the state, and there was again a strong sense of community there. And that, uh, and uh, since that time, the mill, which is currently in its fifth iteration, I think fifth or sixth owner since then, now employs around 700. So they've 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 reduced or declined the the employment from 3,300 to 7,000. That's fairly representative of what's happening in in all the mill towns in Maine today. And that can be attributed to a number of factors. I think one is uh, competition, uh, particularly from, uh, uh, ironically, from uh, the Far East, where, where paper is manufactured there, and Canada as well, because of cheap energy prices. And um, uh, so we visit Rumford, Millinocket, uh, Jay, and all these mill towns. It's, it's sad because you've seen it's the end of an era, and despite what certain politicians are suggesting, there's no prospect of returning to those days. And as I said, when I was a kid. Rumford had a population around 10,000. It's down to 6,500. Uh, it's uh, we were one of the first families. And my grandfather McCarthy, Matthew McCarthy, graduated from the University of Maine Law School in 1900, and he was one of the first lawyers and the first judge in that town. And my father was a, 
he, he was a prosecutor. I was. My uncle and my grandfather, we were the four DAs in that county for a number of years, and uh, we had a strong presence in that, that part of Oxford County. Uh, unfortunately, no family members there today. Uh, we have a home in Rangeley, and I, I tra travel through Rumford, and I have friends and all, but it's, uh, it's uh, fairly representative of what, what's happening in Maine today, and, and I think that uh, uh, this last election kind of reflected that. We look at the voting patterns at areas which were predominantly and strong, strongly uh, Democratic because the unions and the workers has, has uh, uh, voted you know, for, for Trump in a big way because people were unhappy and angry and saw the economy floundering and thought that maybe that there's some way out of it. But um, unfortunately, that's not the case. So I've, I've lived, it, lived through all of it. And one statistic I like to cite is that in Maine, in the last five years, our population has increased by 900 people. And were it not for the influx of immigrants and refugees, uh, we would be in tough shape. And, and that's not a political statement, it's just a realistic statement, yeah. You have, um, you have actually a family background that's not that dissimilar from many people's family backgrounds. In fact, the three of us sitting in the studio, including Spencer Alby, are um, audio engineer, we all have this French-Canadian-Irish-Catholic thing going on. And we've talked about this with um, actually the Lewiston coach, um, soccer team coach, mm. and his family background also had that, that sure, French-Canadian-Irish-Catholic. Sure, sure, um, sure. And that used to be the dividing line. That used to be, like, you have one side, the French-Canadian-Irish, I mean, the French-Canadian-Catholic, other side, Irish-Catholic. Mm. It seems like, you know, we just, it's just, again, same story. It's been going on for a long time. It'll, it yeah. probably will keep going on for a long time. Y yeah, I think you're right. And, and those communities, particularly, I mean, particularly in, in, in the 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, as they migrated from, from Ireland and, and from Canada and Acadia, um, they each had their own culture and language. And, and, and that was reflected in the schools of the churches and all those communities in Lewiston and, and Bitterfit and Saco and all these, and, and Rumford, Madawaska, Jay, all these communities uh, had two churches and two schools. You had the Irish school, the Irish church, the Irish um, priests, and, and the French priests. And uh, I went to French school in, in, in Rumford, uh, spoke French at home to my father, till, uh, and uh, uh, we were very much aware of the, of the cultural differences. But there, we didn't experience that in Rumford. I mean, that, that tension between the two cultures didn't exist. Again, because you had a strong economy. When things are going well, people get along well. It's when they're under economic stress that all these other issues surface. Now, if we had a strong economy, much of the problems we have in Maine today wouldn't exist, I think. People would be complaining as much about the immigrants and others who were coming here. Uh, but uh, you're right, and, and, and uh, when you, th you see the evolution here in Maine where uh, all the economic activity is really in, in two counties, I mean, York and Cumberland counties, north of uh, Brunswick. The populations of 14 counties, uh, beginning from Androscog and Oxford, uh, Somerset, uh, Franklin counties and all, the population has not increased by 1% in 50 years. As a matter of fact, it's the converse, it's declined. And uh, so the real challenge for all of us who are, who are, who are uh, committed to this state find ways of dealing with it. And um, we, I don't know what the solution is, but 
were out there struggling, you know, trying to find a solution to it. That's why we all moved to Cullen County, I guess. <laughs> Do you think that part of what needs to happen is that people who live, and I'm, I'm one of these people, I grew up in Cumberland County, I've lived here most of my life, um, <coughs> would benefit from understanding the perspective of people who live in other counties in the state. Because we, the assumption, it tends to be, well, we all live in Maine, so we all must think alike. But that's just not really true. No, 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 no. You, you, couldn't be, you couldn't be more right. Uh, there's a big bubble here in, in Cumberland County. I mean, this, this area does not reflect in any way what's occurring in the rest of the state. And, and, and I can cite a number of examples. I think probably the best ex example is, uh, I, I inject politics into it because that's the way life is. On the Democratic side, uh, during the Democratic uh, caucuses this spring, you had a, a clear division between uh, lim the limousine liberals side from Cape Elizabeth, Falmouth, Cumberland, and so forth. They all supported Hillary Clinton. And the rest of the state was with uh, Bonnie uh, Bernie in a big way, and so, um, uh, and they've dominated it, and, and they wonder why uh, poor old Emily Kane lost the second district. The problem that we have is, is the problems are not the social issues, which certain people love to focus on, but it's the economy, it's jobs, it's, and that's what people are uh, uh, concerned about. Uh, you see this happening in, in, in all these other counties where uh, people aren't worried about uh, Planned Parenthood. I mean, it's important, and we all support it. Uh, all these social programs don't solve anything. Uh, we have some underlying fundamental issues we have to deal with. That is, how do we strengthen our economy? How do we create more jobs? And, and, and with all due respect to my neighbors and friends and colleagues and my law firm who live in this part of the world, they ha don't understand the, the culture, the dynamic in the rest of the state. And that's, until that happens, uh, that's why, uh, again, I hate to be political about it, that's why the Republicans do so well, because they connect to the people feel somehow that they'll, at least they're focused on it and may, in fact, produce a result. It remains to be seen, but at least they're looking in that direction. Yeah. Well, I noticed even in my practice in Brunswick, which is still Cumberland County, so it's True. still, um, but it, it, it's actually a somewhat diverse medical practice, and we have people from the military who work at BIW. We have people who are fishermen and farmers, yeah, yeah. and, and we, we our catch area is, right. is kind of, uh, is larger, larger than just Brunswick. There are a lot of different people with a lot of different pro political views who come through the doors of our office and that I am able to have conversations with. Yeah, and I, and sure. I don't think that that is something everybody has access to. No, no, no. You're, you're right. And, and Brunswick, well, Brunswick is somewhat part of that limousine liberal crowd because of Bowden and others. I mean, that's in the kind of, you had Bowden, you had Brunswick and Naval Air Stations. Those are, uh, on the government side, I, I consider that to be an artificial economy. I mean, in, in Augusta, Canberra County thrives well because it's the seat of government and you've got thousands of, of government <coughs> state employees there. But, um, uh, and, and, and ironically, in most of the state, I'd say at least 13, 12 of the 13 counties, the best jobs are government jobs. They're not private sector positions. I mean, I can cite examples all over the state. And I love people who say, keep government off our backs. If we took, you know, if we took government out of our economy, this state would collapse, literally collapse. And uh, uh, not so much in this part of the world, in, in Cumberland and New York counties, but also here to, to, to a great extent. Some of the better jobs are, with particularly the federal government, state government, 
uh, private sector can't compete in many ways with, I mean, even in, in the healthcare side. I mean, that's that's government for all practical purposes, and it is. And, you know, uh, so the private sector has a ways to go in Maine, and, and um, uh, it, it, to your point about whether our, the people who live in Cumberland and York counties can connect or relate in any way to the rest of the state, uh, I, I see it in a number of ways. For instance, in, in, the, in creating the state park, that that, new, that monument up there in, in um, Moosehead Lake, uh, and Katahdin, the Katahdin region, the resistance, the, op the opposition came from the locals because they were fearful that somehow this would affect their economy. Where did the support come from? Southern Maine. So people who grew up there spend a week there a year but not dependent upon that area for, for, for a livelihood. So that dynamic is there and, and um, uh, I think the greatest opportunities and also one of our greatest risks is the fact that we haven't capitalized completely on our forest products economy. You know, we have 14 million acres of forest lands here in Maine, and, and we're still sending um, uh, wood to Canada to be, to be processed and returned here in, 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 a, in a better form. So um, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm probably uh, expanding a little more, but the, I think the one big issue that would change Maine in, in many ways is if we had uh, is, is our energy costs. We have the highest energy costs electricity costs in the country. We have 75% of our people dependent upon electricity. We have very little natural gas, and there's been a real attempt to bring gas in from from uh, Pennsylvania and New York here, and there's been tremendous resistance from people who um, don't depend upon the, the, the uh, who would love to, s in other words, if our paper companies had natural gas, that's a big factor, is the energy cost, because over the last 25 years, Paper companies have been acquired and purchased by out-of-state out-of-state investors, primarily um, investment groups. A lot of them from New York City, who who have disposed of all the land. I mean, paper companies do not own any forest lands today. When I was a kid years ago, they had their own source of raw material, so they could control it. They also own their own energy. They had their own hydro projects in Rumford, Jay, in Lewiston, uh, Millinock, all the mill towns. But now all those energy. Uh, generating facilities have been sold to third parties. So now they're paying market rate and it's very uncompetitive. So. so this is interesting for me because you have many years of personal perspective, but you also have family perspective. If your grandfather graduated for the from the University of Maine School of Law in 1900, you obviously have had this familial exposure to Maine history and politics. Do you have any solutions for these problems <laughs> that you're bringing? Uh, I don't have any any any, any solutions. Um, but you're right about the, the history. Is is Maine is still a very young state, a small state. My, my grandfather, 19, my my father, read law in his office. My father never went to college, but he ended up in the state supreme court. You know, those things happened happened back then. Uh, uh, again, there's no simple solution. I think that uh, energy is a, is a big factor. Uh, I was in last week. I was in in, in Austin visiting my oldest son and and, and uh, talking to Emmett about. It. I said, "What is there about Emmett about Austin that's so attractive to people?" He said, "The climate, the culture, and taxes." He said, "Those are the three issues." Now we've got the culture. We have the climate to some extent. A tax structure. Uh, as a result of this most recent um, referendum, we're going to be the, you know, probably the second highest in the country. Uh, it, it, none of us 
enjoy paying taxes, but we recognize we have to pay them. Prepare to do it. It's a price of civilization. So um, uh, we have a, we have a, we have a lifestyle here that is the envy of the world, and and your publications from your company, for instance, kind of reflect that. That I suspect most of your uh, members or buyers are from out of state. They love to have something that connects to Maine on their on their on their uh, table so they can sh show it to people. To, to answer your question, I don't know. I think energy, energy. If I were to identify one issue, it would be energy and taxes. Energy being priority. Uh, taxes is is a, is a big factor. We, our law firm, we, rep you know, we represent a number of businesses, and we know clients of ours who are looking carefully at Maine right now and who are having second thoughts about either remaining here. Uh, when you have a, 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 a tax rate of of, um, you know, with, of over ten percent, it would think about another. It's our, our incremental uh, tax rate will be the second highest in the country for those making over $200,000. Now, should we complain about it? Probably not. But uh, they're the ones, the people who are earning that type of, they're the ones who lead the companies and create the jobs and strengthen our economy. You can criticize them all they want, but that's the way it is. So, uh, I, 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 and you see the, the, other, the other issue here, and I have to give uh, some people credit, we do have a an expanding government, and, and why? Because there's a, there's a vacuum there and people want goods and services, but that's not the long-term solution. Adding more government jobs, having more people hanging around isn't, isn't the solution, maybe for the short term, but uh, I think that the uh, uh, health care is another big, very big issue here, which which cannot be neglected any, any longer. As you know, we have 65,000 people who are without insurance here because uh, the administration refuses to, to support the expansion of, of Medicaid in Maine, and I mean those are the things that uh, we have to talk about. Because Forbes magazine just what listed us as the fiftieth fiftieth worst place to do business in the country. We went up from forty seventh to fiftieth. Think about it. What 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 kind of a message that conveyed to people? Uh, and that all kinds of factors contributed to it. But uh, I think. Taxes is one, uh, and the fact that we have a, we're the oldest state in the country, uh, non-expanding economy, uh, paper companies that are struggling. Three or four of them have shut down in the last four or five years. We have probably five, four or five functioning, productive, successful companies, two of which went through bankruptcy in the last three or four years. So I don't know. I think the solution is getting in the radio business, you know, like yourself, you know. That's what that's what the future is. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, um, I, I think there is something to be said actually about uh, the possibility of improving communications. I mean, I, I think you know I'm sh sure that you're somewhat kidding about getting into the radio business, but um, there is something that I th that I think that I see happening that is encouraging, and that is that there there is a greater opportunity to communicate with people that maybe we don't live right next to there is a greater opportunity if we're willing to to listen yep. there there are more people mm -hmm. who are at least the people that I interview for the show and for the magazines and even people that I see as patients there are there is a sense that um, that it is possible to yeah. to yeah. try to yeah. ad address the problem oneself yeah I, I think the other thing that I, I failed to mention was was the um, uh, the importance of the University of Maine and the University of Maine system itself. Uh, the fact that we have um, um, you know, five different campuses, 
uh, we still have a essentially not uneducated, but uh, the percentage of, of, of students going on to college from, from high school has remained flat and, matter of fact, declined a little bit. I think what's happening here at USM, I think, is, is uh, very encouraging. It's been revitalized. And the new leader, I think, he, uh, uh, he's doing a very good job. And, and, and I, I think education is critical. I do think that, and I, I agree with the referendum as to its objective in, in providing additional funding for uh, secondary schools. But what the real need is at, in the college and university level, because we no longer are a public university. The, the, the legislature, the government only contributes, I think, like 36 and 40 percent of the funding of the University of Maine. So the rest of it comes from private sector. So it's no longer a public school. And, and, and history has shown us in those countries, in those states where they have a strong education system, the economy thrives. And I, my thesis is inject more money at the University of Maine, subsidize these kids, get them out, get, get them to school, um, and and that plus the immigrants. I mean, you think about it here in Portland, there are 7,000 uh, students in the, in the Portland school system, and I'm told that 2,000 of whom are immigrants. What would we be without them? In Lawston, almost 5,000 people are there. And they're now starting to contribute. There's a lot of resistance to it, but as you know, your family, my family years ago, they all migrated here from Quebec or Acadia, or Ireland, or some other country. Uh, it took us a while to acclimate, but we adjusted and, and produced something. And so I think we have a, they're doing great things here in Portland in terms of, of welcoming immigrants and injecting them into the economy and to the school systems. Uh, so I think the future here, but for the immigrants, we'd have a negative population, negative growth in terms of live births in, this ma in Maine. The last two years we've had um, more deaths than births. <laughs> so uh, I think we have to welcome the immigrant community. But I think we have to do like you know, Canada's doing. Canada's open arms. Here we think that they're uh, all terrorists or something, but in fact they have a great deal of contribution. We know the Burundis, for instance, is a, there are a number of uh, former French-speaking colonies which uh, where their immigrants are now, uh, refugees are now moving to Maine. And they all of a sudden, even the churches, and we go to the Sacred Heart Church in, in, in Portland, and the, the, the mass is in French now, you know. Those institutions will be gone. And even at the, at the, during high school, look at the number of uh, Portland High School, what, 26, 28 languages are spoken. And I th that, believe it or not, I think is the future of our state. And because and these people want to be successful, they're grateful to be here. Uh, they don't want to be dependent upon the government for the most part, so it's not all bad, I guess. Yeah. You were part of the, um, you worked on the Kennedy campaign back when you were a young man, so oh. this was probably one of your early um, exposures to politics, and that was a time of great hope. That was a time of great change. Things were happening. Do you think it's possible that we will come to that place again? <laughs> how to predict in light of what happened November 8th what's going to happen but uh, um, I have a lot of confidence and faith in, 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 in our system I think the checks and balances are there I think some extreme statements by politicians will, will uh, I don't think they'll be executed in, in that sense uh, yeah you're right I've seen uh, I've been involved in a number of campaigns over the years and I mean I was involved in the Watergate you know my, I was deeply involved in the Watergate it was my phone that was tapped at the Watergate and I've been involved in lawsuits with uh, the uh, Nixon committee. I'm totally familiar with that. Even back in '73, when Nixon, when he uh, uh, resigned and um, pending his impeachment, I mean, everyone thought that that was the end of the democracy. We know it. Matter of fact, it, it strengthened it. So I think we have to 
clearly has some challenges ahead of us uh, in the next four years, and only time will tell. But um, yeah, I think that, that the strength of our country is, is you know, we're, we're the freest, uh, the most open society in, 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 in the world, and I think we'll continue to be that way. I think that uh, uh, Mr. Trump has is, is, uh, defined himself fairly well uh, during the campaign, but now we're finding that when he deals with the real world, whether, whether it's national security or economy, his position is changing a lot of these issues because uh, he has ultimately has to act responsibly. And the, and the Congress, I think, will um, will uh, uh, be a good check for him, as will the judiciary. So um, I, I, you're right. 1960 was a challenge because of the of the religious issue in many ways, um, particularly in West Virginia and that part of the country. But here we have a broader one. We have just a group of brand happy. Um, Men and women who really believe that 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 there's a group of elitists who've been running the country and they've and they have been um, are forgotten. They've been marginalized. And um, whether well, that's true or not, I don't know. But that's why they feel. And that's how they voted. Um, I mean, even in Maine, a good example of that. Southern Maine was strong liberal support for Shelley Pingree. Second district went for Poliquin, very conservative. I mean, I think we have it all here in Maine. But again, it's it's the economy, it's jobs, and, and that's you can talk about anything else. I think it's secondary. I guess the reason I, I keep pushing for um, the possibility of hope is, like you, I have children. So I have a this son who's 23, a daughter who's um, soon to be 21, another one who's 16. And I guess I want to believe, as someone who's lived in Maine all of her life and has several generations behind me and hopefully many generations ahead of me mm -hmm. living in Maine, I want to believe that that we're, we're still continuing to evolve and there's still possibility here. And it's just going it, to... It, we don't want to be overly optimistic, but mm -hmm. I think that the yeah. possibility that we can put work into this and have some yeah. success, I, I, I think I, that's I, important yeah, for me I, to... I, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I get, getting back, I mean, I, again, I have four boys. I, my oldest son moved to, to Austin, wife for a job. He worked at the White House for seven years. He was assistant to the president. He was um, head of the military office. I mean, he had one of the best jobs in the White House. He liked to come back to Maine. He was a lawyer, but he didn't want to practice law. And looked around. And not many opportunities here. My second son is a teacher uh, at a charter school on the West Coast. He loved to come back here to find work. He's desperate. My third son lives in lives here in Poland, uh, and he's happiest man in the world. He married recently. He loves the environment. He's totally engaged, totally committed. Works very hard. I mean, there are no there aren't too many easy jobs here. I mean, for young men and women, sometimes you have to have several jobs now to survive. But I, I share your your concern about. Uh, we all want our families to be here. We want to continue what, whatever we've whatever we've contributed to the to the state. But again, it gets back to the economy. I, I agree with you. I think that almost by default, Maine's going to do well because um, we have the lowest crime rate in the country, strongest environmental laws, the culture and, and, and is, is very very strong, and, and there's still a sense of of um, community here. I mean, we don't have the extremes. We have you know politicians who are who are fairly verbal and they express themselves but beneath that veneer I think they all they're all concerned about the, the, the good of the state and, and they view it differently than some of us do but I think we're all involved in a common cause in that sense I think you want your children to stay here and, and I'd like to get my kids back here if we could but uh, I was in Austin last week and talk about a thriving community I mean it took a million people um, just excitement every just sense it Portland has some of that here York County has some of that here but boy it's lacking in the rest of the state. Well, 
I guess we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens in the upcoming years. But I do appreciate the um, the time that not only the time that you've spent with me today, but also the time that you've spent in the state and really working to um, create a place that's good for our children, grandchildren, generations to come. Mm. Um, any last words for us? No, I think this this program that you, that you uh, that you have here, I think, is contributes a great deal to to what you were talking about communications and that people. People want to express themselves. You know, they want they want to feel that, that their opinions mean something significant. They carry some weight. They don't want to feel that they've been dictated to. And that was what I think happened this past campaign. Uh, I'm not being partisan about it, but you know, on the Democratic side, you've got the, the Clintons who've been around for a long time, and you have the. Uh, and I think there's a lot of resentment as to whether or not they should dictate to us as to. Uh, 330 million people. Do we need two families? Do we need the Clintons and, and, and the Bushes as the only ones who could lead our country? I mean, that's undemocratic in many ways. And I think we saw a lot of that. And I think that's that's ending. It's ending. It has ended. And I think on balance, it's a good thing. I think, uh, uh, as I said, I cited the example of, of um, divisions within the, the Democratic Party and to some extent the Republican Party. But um, you know, people who, from Cumberland County, him slightest idea how people are struggling in the rest of the state. Don't, they don't relate to it. They, where do they go? When they travel, they don't go north. They go south. They go to Boston, New York, and Florida, right? Except for you and me, we we still stay here and struggle, try to try to get by. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming out and having this conversation with me. I've been speaking with Severin Bellevaux, who is one of Maine's best-known attorneys and who has ex significant experience in legislative and regulatory issues and is also the founding partner of Pretty Flaherty, also um, father of four and married to, I'm sure, a very wonderful person. Now Lovely. A former nun. Oh, very How's good. That? that was a spiritual attraction. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> and now living here in Portland. So thank you for spending time with us today, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Lisa. This has been enjoyable. Yeah, I really have had a, had a great time talking to you. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 276, Political Perspectives. Our guests have included Harold Pacius and Severin Bellavo. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa, and see my running travel food and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our political perspective show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. Happy New Year, and may you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belial. For more information on our host's production team, Main Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. <laughs>